Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut. This is Storied History. And this story is about the history of Mexico. But before we do any of that, I'm going to add to one of the things that I said in the earlier podcast, something that uh, was incomplete. Again, one of our listeners, one of my listeners, uh, reached out to me and implored me to add to it, so I'm going to, because this is a good story. Juan Diego. So, he was a man of the soil. He was a, a peasant who was walking to the Catholic priests. And in the first encounter of the Virgin Mary, she implored him to tell the priests that they should erect a new place of worship in her honor, uh, that it that she might relieve the distress of all those who call upon her in need. He told this to the bishops, and they ignored it. The second time uh, he encountered her, he told her that he was a man of no importance and that she should find someone else. And she insisted that he was the one that she wanted to perform this task. So he returned to the bishop. The bishop then said, you're going to have to prove this. And so the Virgin Mary appeared to him again and actually said uh, one of the more famous phrases in Mexican history, no estoy yo aquí que su tu madre, am I not here, I am your mother. This is actually in, inscribed over the main entrance of the Basilica of Guadalupe. She told him to climb a hill and collect flowers that were growing there. He did so, uh, flowers that were blooming unseasonably, out of season, they would not have been blooming otherwise. He brought them to the bishop. He kind of um, emptied out his sack, dumped them out in front of the bishop. And uh, the bishop realized that this was a miracle. And that is why when he looked at the flowers, they were inscribed with the image of the Virgin herself. Thus, we have the legend of the Virgin of Guadalupe. It was not simply, as I kind of tongue-in-cheek referred to earlier as simply a man that, that wanted a church built closer to his home. So there you go. That is a more expanded version of the legend of the Virgin of Guadalupe and of Juan Diego and of the building of the second most venerated and visited site in all of Catholicism on the planet. And moving forward, here we go. Specifically, the century of chaos. This is the time in between the Mexican War for Independence against Spain and the Mexican Revolution, which overthrew... Well, we'll get to that. So this century was chaotic, but let's start at the beginning. Mexico declared its independence from Spain officially on September 27th, 1821. It was 299 years and 11 months from the fall of Tenochtitlan. New Spain had reigned that entire time. If you're curious about the history there, you can go back and check the previous episode. So first things first, we're going to have to have a name for this new country. There were several different candidates, several different options. The United States of Mexico 
Well, that's no good. That's too much like the United States of America. The Mexican Republic. Well, that's better. The Republic of Mexico. That's got a nice ring to it, almost exactly as the last one. New Spain. Absolutely not. We just overthrew the Spanish. We're not going back to that. The United Mexican States. Well, that's just silly. Oh, wait. That's what they went with. Really? That's what they went with. The United Mexican States. That's the official name. That is the official name. The United Mexican States. Still, to this day, even though the entire world calls it Mexico, every map says Mexico, every globe, the entire population of the country says Mexico, officially it's not. It's the United Mexican States. And I, like every other human being on the planet, I'm going to ignore that. In the interest of expediency and simplicity, for this particular podcast, we're just going to call it Mexico. Because, you know, that's what everybody does. Mexico began its life as a monarchy. And while the hopes were high, the prospects were somewhat dimmer. A Spanish mayor of a large Mexican city uh, towards the end of the war actually said, I cannot imagine a worse punishment to the Mexicans than to let them govern themselves. Now, that is a horrible quote. It is more than slightly racist, but it is unfortunately accurate. For the next hundred years, it was chaos. It began just fine. Now, as I said, the prospects were fairly glowing. At this point, Mexico was huge. It ran from Panama in the south up to the limits of Oregon in the north. It was 5,000 miles from side to side. 5 million square kilometers. It was larger than the empire of Alexander the Great. Unfortunately, the only really impressive thing about Mexico at this point was its size. Many of the territories were just simply wilderness uh, with local indigenous peoples living on them that did not recognize Mexico as their sovereign. And it was divided, not just into the different tribes and the different localities, uh, but the Mexican people themselves were not entirely on board with the new country, the new emperor, and how everything was arranged. Uh, basically, at this point, there were three separate factions that had power. The first and the most powerful at this point was the old landed gentry. These are the very, very wealthy people of Mexico, almost entirely 100% Spanish descent, although not all of them. The second was the church, the Catholic church, which held a great deal of power uh, because it owned a huge amount of land and because it can kind of controlled and influenced the hearts and minds of the people. And the third is the people, the indigenous populations and the mestizos, the, the mixtures of the Spanish and the indigenous people themselves. These are the poor. These are the peasants. These are the people that actually do the work. For the next hundred years, it's pretty much just a struggle between those three groups. So the very first emperor, we'll start there. He lasted less than a year. The second, uh, well, he was actually of African descent. He was the first ruler in, on this, uh, this hemisphere to, uh, to be of African descent. Once he got into power, he immediately freed all of the enslaved Africans in Mexico. Although, it should be said, he did not actually free all of the slaves. 
just the enslaved Africans. There were still a huge number of enslaved peoples that were native uh, to this continent. These were different tribes and different individuals that had been captured by different tribes and were forced to work. In fact, 70 years later, uh, slavery in the Yucatan Peninsula would spark a revolution, uh, but we'll get there. His government lasted for eight months. The third lasted for one week. I'm not even going to attempt to summarize all of the various people and the factions that uh, struggled for power in these initial decades. Uh, just know that it was chaotic. Each new glorious regime was supposed to last for a long time and just didn't. Some of them lasted only a few days. One of them lasted literally less than a day. Uh, the guy took seized power in the morning and by the evening he was deposed. Virtually all of the presidents for the next hundred years would be overthrown by coups uh, with varying degrees of influence from the groups of power, from the military, from the church, that sort of thing. So instead, we're going to focus uh, on three individuals. The first is rather famous in Texas. He is 11-time Mexican president, a general, Texas villain, and occasionally a Mexican anti-hero, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. After him comes the emperor, Maximilian, and his wife, Charlotte, who were kind of imported from Europe. Yes, you could actually import royalty. And the most powerful, Perfidio Diaz, who is the dictator slash president, really just a dictator, before the Mexican Revolution 100 years later. So the most interesting is Santa Ana. The most tragic and romantic is Maximilian and Charlotte. And the most powerful was Diaz. Santa Ana was a rebel soldier who had tried to take the power of the crown and failed. There was an attempted coup that did not succeed. They didn't always. You'd think they would, given how many there were, but no, they didn't. So instead of seizing the crown, they made him a governor. Uh, but the governor of the poorest state, the Yucatan, the peninsula that forms the southern border of the Gulf of Mexico. The terrain was such at that point that there was no actual land connection with Mexico City. Any travel between Mexico City and the Yucatan Peninsula had to be done over the sea. And the Yucatan Peninsula itself extends towards Cuba. Why is that important? Well, because of these two factors, it meant that Cuba was the most important trading partner in the Yucatan Peninsula. With the Yucatan Peninsula, rather. But because Cuba was still a Spanish colony, and because Mexico City had banned trade with Spain and with her colonies, Santa Ana had a problem. He was not allowed to trade with his most important trading partner. So, he first just asked the central government of Mexico, the one he had just attempted to overthrow, to lift the ban so that he could trade. They said no. Santa Ana then concluded that if the trading ban wasn't lifted, the only solution was, and he guesses, how would a rational individual rectify this? Well, we don't know, because what Santa Ana did was he decided that the only solution was to invade Cuba, overthrow the Spanish, and annex it as make it part of the Yucatan Peninsula and under his control as governor. To that end, 
He assembled an army of 5,000 men and prepared for another, yet another, international war. Mexico's second war with Spain in just three years. Everyone freaked out. Everyone. Spain, France, Great Britain, and the United States, and of course, Mexico. So he backed off. The invasion did not occur. Cuba was not invaded by Mexico, although it really was kind of a close thing. Instead, he bided his time, contributing to a constitutional uh, writing in 1824 and then later becoming president, also through a coup, in 1832, when he immediately had to deal with Mexico's biggest problem, and that was Texas. Texas independence is a fascinating story in and of itself, and I'm not going to cover it. There are so many legends and stories that they do fill up books. Uh, maybe I'll do one day a grab bag episode where we just kind of cover all the different weird little stories and individuals. So no offense to Texans and no offense to the people of Texas, but this isn't really about you. It's about Mexico. So let's talk about Texas. Texas at this point used to be part of New Spain, but as that collapsed during the Mexican War for Independence, the westward expansion of the United States was beginning. In Texas was primarily empty. Spain, when they were in control, had not really made any attempt to colonize Texas, primarily because of the native tribes there, rather fierce warriors that did not want colonists coming in, so they resisted. These native tribes, the uh, Apaches, the Comanches, the Wichitas, the Caddos, the Tonkawas, the Cherokees, and the Karankawas, very fiercely independent and very fierce warriors in and of themselves. They fought each other, but they also would fight any of the Spanish incursions into their territory. It was primarily the Mexican government at this point that escalated hostilities. And by 1835, the Mexican government was offering 100 pesos for each Apache scalp, 50 pesos for a woman's scalp, and 25 pesos for the scalp of a child. That is a very difficult thing to say, uh, so I'm going to say it again. By 1835, the Mexican government was offering 100 pesos for each Apache scalp, 50 pesos for every the scalp of a woman, and 25 pesos for the scalp of a child. Vile. Absolutely vile. And somewhat effective at reducing the population of the people that had lived there for a very, very long time. So Texas was uncolonized. It was not empty, but it was uncolonized. In order to colonize it, the Mexican government was offering free land. It's actually very similar to the process and to the offerings that the United States made to its pioneers, uh, the Homestead Act, which led to, well, a huge amount of the westward expansion of the United States, uh, giving the pioneers free land if they would stay on it and live there and make it useful to farm it. The Mexican government offered free land and tax-free importation of anything necessary for a colony, and it worked. People came, but at this point, they were primarily coming from Los Estados Unidos, the United States. Uh, so much so that the U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Clay, observed that little interest the Mexicans must have in keeping Texas since they are just giving it away. 
1825, Stephen F. Austin arrived in Texas with 300 families. The only conditions were that they swear an oath of allegiance to Mexico and that they brought no slaves. Austin and the colonists uh, responded to these restrictions by ignoring them. They just didn't do them. They swore no oaths and they brought hundreds and hundreds of enslaved Africans. The number of American colonists escalated very quickly. Within 10 years, the Anglo-Saxon population uh, were, who were primarily educated and very prosperous outnumbered the Hispanic population by about three to one. Conflict really was inevitable at this point, and it was sparked by the official abolition of slavery. Not in the U.S., that was still 30 years away, but in Mexico by the second president, Vicente Guerrero. The Texas colonists, again, simply ignored it. At that point, there were 8,000 people who lived in Stephen F. Austin's colony, and 2,000 of them were enslaved Africans. The Mexican government responded by sending troops, and the Texans responded by declaring independence and attempting to forcibly expel the Hispanic population, the mestizos, and the other just Mexican colonists and descendants of the original Spanish. Now, obviously, that is an incredibly simplified version, but it is essentially accurate at its heart. Santa Ana, who had become president again at that point, was bored. He was always more of a soldier than a diplomat or a politician. And so he decided, as the president, to go up to Texas and take, take it back over. He was very much one of those leaders that wanted the title, but didn't actually want to do the job. The army was more exciting, so that's what he did. He went back, he took control of the army, and he marched north to reconquer Texas. It did not work out that way. Texas became an independent country in 1836 and a later a state in the United States in 1845. And that was a real problem for Mexico, not just because they lost the land, but because it also encouraged the other Mexican states to revolt, which they did unsuccessfully. But expensively, Chiapas and the Yucatan revolted and it took time, soldiers and money to get them back which contributed to the biggest problem that the Mexican government had throughout this entire century. They were broke, constantly broke. This was an issue for the entire country. No matter who was in power, the Mexican government had no money. Now, part of this was because of the simple fact that the people who had all of the money and the land also had the power and they didn't want to be taxed. And part of it is because this is a very far-flung empire, very large, and it was difficult to enforce the import and export taxes from thousands of miles away, which at that point was the primary way of funding governments. You tax the goods that are coming in and out of the country, tariffs, essentially. The other factor was foreign payments. All right, before World War II, it was extremely common for the losing side of a war to agree to pay huge amounts of money to the winner every single year. And Mexico was no exception. They were burdened with massive payments to the great foreign powers of Europe, to Britain, France, Spain, and later to the United States. Mexico was barely able to put down the rebellions close to Mexico City, and it was completely incapable of defending the territory from external pressures. And by external pressures, I mean invasions. And by invasions, I mean the United States. The idea that the United States has expanded without 
ever actually taking territory in a war is just completely 100% wrong. So in 1812, the United States invaded Canada, attempting to take it over by force, take it from the British. That didn't work because the citizen militias of Canada were well-united, well-trained, and well-armed. And of course, because the British were the strongest military on the planet at that point. So 30 years later, they tried again, but not with Canada. They tried with the former territory of New Spain. They tried with Mexico. At this point, Mexico's population was extremely uh, divisive. They had no money and a very poorly armed military. Texas, which had gained its independence in 1836, declared that the new border would be the Rio Grande. It wasn't always, so it is now. But when the Texas originally declared its independence, the border was about 200 miles north. Uh, if The shape of Texas is extremely distinctive, and if you think of the bottom part that just kind of sticks down, uh, that was cut off. If you imagine a line kind of cutting that off, that's where the original border was. Texas had declared that their border was the Rio Grande, and the United States, as the new expanding country, was 100% willing to go along with that. President Polk, that is P-O-L-K, and this was his baby, essentially. So here's the short version. While Santa Ana was in Texas failing to put down the rebellion, he was deposed. He was uh, no longer the president. He was When he got back to Mexico City, he was arrested, he was almost hanged, and then he was exiled, which was absolutely permanent, but not really because it only lasted for just a few years. Texas was now part of the United States, and President James K. Polk wanted to expand, so he offered to buy huge portions of what was New Spain, what became Mexico, and what is now the United States. They should have taken the deal because it would have been a huge amount of influx of cash and money, which they desperately needed, uh, but they didn't. So Polk decided to send troops into the newly acquired Texas. He was trying to intimidate the Mexicans into taking the deal. Uh, plata y plomo. Silver or lead. You either take the money or there will be violence. The American soldiers marched right to the agreed-upon border. And then they kept right on going, all the way down to the Rio Grande. When they got to the Rio Grande, the Mexicans demanded that they withdraw. The United States refused, shots were fired, and then President Polk then claimed that Mexico had shed American blood on American soil. This was, in point of fact, an outright and egregious lie. It 100% did not happen, but that didn't matter at all. The United States declared war on Mexico, and the fight was on. The result was inevitable. The United States was bigger, stronger, unified, industrial, and rich. Mexico was one-third of the size of the population. It was agricultural and fractured. And even the provinces that did have armies either refused to send them or simply declared themselves independent and tried to revolt from Mexico City. The internal turmoil caused rapid changes and coups. And I mean that really, really rapid. Between 1846 and 1848, there were seven different presidents of Mexico. Santa Ana himself came back for 12 days. 12 days, not even two weeks. That's how long Santa Ana lasted as president in this particularly tumultuous point in Mexican history. The Mexican soldiers that did fight against the United States were not in any 
shape or condition to to do so. They were mainly just peasants who had been forcibly conscripted against their will. They had very, very ineffective weapons. They didn't want to fight. And so most of the actual engagements were won by the United States. By January of 1847, uh, the U.S. had actually just simply annexed huge portions of what is now New Mexico, Arizona, and California, as well as the area in the south of Texas all the way down to the Rio Grande, uh, which forms the border even to this day. Santa Ana, in his absolutely glorious and rather interesting way of, well, doing everything, had attempted to make a deal with the United States. This was while he was uh, just a general, not Andean exile. So he had been exiled in Cuba, and he actually made a deal with the United States to return to Mexico and try to take power, and he would then sell the desired territories to the United States. Uh, The U.S. agreed. They took him from Cuba, put him in Mexico, and he immediately betrayed them. Mexicans, there was a day when you greeted me with the title of Soldier of the People. Let me take it again and devote myself even to the death in defense of the freedom and independence of the Republic. He assembled an army from essentially out of nowhere and marched north to hold back General Zachary Taylor's unstoppable advance toward Mexico City. They met at the city of Satillo. This is about 180 miles south of the Mexican-American border, 180 miles south of the Rio Grande. Santa Ana had the numbers. He had a much bigger army. They were not as well armed, but at this point, they uh, he actually outnumbered General Taylor's forces by quite a bit. So he sent a message to General Taylor to give him a chance to surrender. Illustrious sir, he wrote, you are surrounded by 20,000 men and cannot in any human probability avoid suffering a rout and being cut to pieces with your troops. But as you deserve consideration and particular esteem, I wish to save you from a catastrophe. When General Taylor received this message, he responded, Tell Santa Ana to go to hell. Put that in Spanish and send it to him. So the fight was on. This is, at this point, one of the fiercest battles of the Mexican-American War. Santa Ana, the one-legged soldier, uh, emboldened his soldiers, inspired them, rode like lightning through the troops, Uh, There was a testimony later, uh, eyewitness described him this way. He gallops from one position to another, despite the pain he suffers in his incomplete leg, indifferent to the grenades exploding around him. The horse falls dead and he falls to the ground. Santa Anna stands up, takes another horse, and continues running through the field with his sword drawn, waving only a small whip, with his aide-de-camp behind him, galloping, trying to convey his orders and keep up with the general. Soldiers were absolutely inspired by his courage, and during the hours of this rather emotional battle, uh, they emerged victorious. Santa Anna had reached perhaps the pinnacle of his illustrious career. He got the victory, but he left. Despite winning, he actually withdrew from the battlefield, and much of his military, much of his army who had fought tooth and nail for him, a lot of them just kind of went back to the hills because it was so difficult to do once they did not really relish the thought of doing it a second time. Shortly thereafter, the United States wanted to open up a second front, so they did. General Winifield Scott, 
had landed on in Mexico and taken the same route, essentially across the land, basically the same way that Cortez did 300 years, 350 years earlier when he conquered the Aztecs and the Mayans. They attacked Mexico City. And it was the Marines who stormed uh, the Chapultepec Castle during the Battle of Chapultepec, which had been Montezuma's uh, stronghold uh, in Mexico City, which is why the very first line of the American Marine Corps hymn is from the halls of Montezuma. That's where this comes from. General Scott began his attack of the capital uh, in, of Mexico City in September of 1847. This was the last line of resistance. At the gates of Mexico City, the church bells, which had been silent uh, for quite some time, uh, for days, all began to ring like sirens. A very dramatic and fierce battle began. The civilian population hiding in their homes, terrified, went outside, climbed onto the rooftops to attack the invaders, to try to resist. It was futile. The Americans were victorious. They defeated the citizens of Mexico City, the army having been defeated before this. And on September 16th, the actual anniversary of Mexican independence, the stars and stripes waved over the National Palace of Mexico City. The United States had won the war. The signing of the ensuing treaty uh, reduced the territory of Mexico by half. Huge portions of what is now the United States uh, were annexed uh, because of this war as part of that treaty. And huge numbers of people that had been living there as Mexican citizens uh, now became, in theory, equal citizens of the United States. In practice, no, but in theory, yes. Santa Ana became president at some point in the years following. And it was under his presidency where he was threatened again by the United States. They wanted more land. And it was once again plata y plomo. Either you take the money or you take the bullet. And at this point, Santa Ana realized that he absolutely could not defend against the United States. So he sold a portion of land uh, called the Gadsden Purchase of 1854 to the United States. This basically is the bottom portion of New Mexico and Arizona. They needed it to build a railroad, which they did. It was $10 million, which is the equivalent to $260 million uh, today. There is a little bit of a debate among historians about whether Santa Ana did this because his country was broke or because he realized he couldn't defend it and couldn't resist it. Uh, either way, I don't really think it matters. It was probably a mixture of both. And I think those kinds of distinctions at this point are fairly meaningless. Part of the actual uh, agreed upon price did include forgiveness of war debt. The uh, What I mentioned earlier about the foreign payments uh, at this point to the United States, a lot of them were canceled. So the Mexican government didn't have to come up with uh, the money every single year to pay those off. So there was a net gain of $10 million, uh, which was very beneficial to Santa Ana, who at that point towards the end of his life was living rather extravagantly. And although he may have squandered some of the money, it certainly did help. He didn't squander all of it. We're going to close this portion about Santa Ana, referring to and talking about a little bit about one of the more interesting and la- long-lasting things that he did. And that was he 
came up with the national anthem. Well, he didn't. But he actually opened it up to the people. He organized a contest uh, wherein the people of Mexico would submit proposals and the winning one would be the national anthem. There was a young, uh, very talented poet named Francisco Gonzalez Mosanerga. Uh, he didn't want to compete. He didn't, did not want to give a submission, although most of his, the people around him very much highly encouraged him to do so. Despite their encouragement uh, and his girlfriend very, very much pushing him to do this, he just refused to do it. So one day when he was visiting his girlfriend, she lured him into a back room. And once he got in the back room, she pushed him in, shut the door and locked it and told him that he cannot come out until he had written a submission for the national anthem. There was paper and ink in the room with him, and the walls were actually painted with kind of historical scenes from Mexico's history. Four hours later, he submitted his proposal in the ignominious way, kind of under the door. She read it, realized that it was a good proposal, this was a good submission, and submitted it on his behalf. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you this story if the next thing had not happened, uh, he won. His submission became and remains the national anthem of Mexico. The next war, because there was always a next war in this century of chaos, was internal. This was between the liberals and the conservatives. Now, at this point, the conservatives were the landed gentry who wanted to maintain their power, and the liberals were kind of represented the peasants who wanted to overthrow that portion, that established power structure, and uh, set up something that was more, at least marginally, more equal. The third, of course, the third factor, of course, was the Catholic Church. So at this point, uh, one of the things that the liberals were pushing for very, very strongly is to uh, to expropriate the lands. These were the lands that were owned by the church, and a huge number of them were not actually in use. They were just kind of sitting there empty. They wanted to take these lands and give them back to the peasants, uh, which the church had taken from the peasants, and, and let the peasants work them so that the country would be more profitable. You got to start from zero at this point. They needed the land to be productive in order for the country to be profitable and prosperous. There's no point in trying to set up an industrial base without first having a successful agricultural one. It just doesn't work. The conservatives, uh, by their part, wanted to maintain their power, but also to establish uh, kind of a strong authoritarian state uh, because they were, and this is very understandable, they looked at the chaos of the several decades before and realized that these constant rebellions and internal divisions, the never-ending coups and overthrowing one president after another, after another, after another, after another, was never going to be conducive to a prosperous country. So the conservatives wanted to centralize the power, uh, establish a very, very strong military, and to force the people to work. I'm really not going to go into the details of the actual war. Just know that uh, Santa Ana was... Uh, deposed. He was overthrown for the last time. Uh, the war involved betrayal on both sides. These are, you know, armies switching sides. 
There were loans that were taken out by the at the end of a point of a gun that were never intended to be paid back and were never paid back. Uh, there were churches that were sacked, uh, that were stripped of their gold and their silver to fund the war effort or sometimes just took taken by the bandits. There was a constitution in 1857 which decreed the freedom of religion, the freedom of the press, equality before the law, other such things. These are very much in the kind of the United States uh, vein, very similar to it, what they were trying to establish. Uh, they very much wanted the uh, separation of church and state, which of course the Catholic Church did not want and the conservatives opposed radically. I'm spending a little bit more time on this than any of the other internal divisions because this was not just simply another rebellion. This is not the people of Mexico just suffering under yet another coup. This was actually a battle, a war for the soul of the country, for the direction that the country would take. Both sides committed atrocities. Both sides uh, were taking things from the church. And in the end, it was the liberals that won. The conservatives were defeated. And the next president, Benito Juarez, decreed the nationalization of the Catholic Church's assets, including the land. The assets themselves were used to pay the debts to the foreign language, uh, excuse me, to the foreign lenders that were putting such pressure upon the newly formed government. And never to that, everything was fine, obviously. Well, no. Actually, it was exactly the opposite. Uh, just because the hostilities, the war, the fighting was over did not mean that everything was okay. Uh, again, the government is just bankrupt. They don't have any money. The value of the church's properties had been radically overestimated. Uh, seizing the land itself didn't do anything because there was no one actually working it. And even where they could begin to work it, it was going to be years before the land would actually be profitable, uh, where it could actually produce something that could be sold, could be taxed, uh, could add to the prosperity of the nations. That was still years away. So Juarez, although he absolutely had high hopes of what he was uh, going to accomplish once he got into power, once he did get into power, was able to do nothing. The treasury was empty. It was the people, the government were broke. And so he couldn't really do anything at all. And he had massive payments coming due. And these are the war debts to France, to Spain, and to Britain. Not the United States, though. Those were pretty much canceled with the Gadsden purpose. Santa Anna, he did that much. So faced with an empty treasury and an angry populace, Benito Juarez essentially decided that he could not tax his own people to the brink of starvation in order to pay Britain and France and Spain. And so he announced to the world that he was canceling unilaterally the debt. He was suspending payments and he would no longer be paying the great powers of Europe. They responded in exactly the way that you would expect. As soon as the announcement was made, as soon as they heard that this is what is happening, all three countries, all three nations sent massive war fleets into the Gulf of Mexico to force the new Mexican government to make these payments. One of which, the most important of which, was Napoleon III. Uh, this man believed that he could establish himself as the monarch of Mexico and take it over. So he arrived not just with the idea that he's going to put pressure 
on the Mexican government, but on the idea that he's going to set himself up as the new monarch, the emperor of Mexico. When the Spanish and the British realized that that was his intention, they decided they, they did not want any part of this, so they left. They went back to Europe, and it was just the Spanish, excuse me, just the Mexican government, the Mexican people facing down Napoleon. And Napoleon, he didn't come in guns blazing. He came in with a smile on his face. His ministers, his representatives here in Mexico offering congratulations to Benito Juarez, offering the French protection, their goodwill. Mexicans, we did not come to take sides in your divisions. We have come to put an end to them. What we want is to invite all of the men of goodwill to join the consolidation of order, the regeneration of this great, great country. And to give proof of our sincere desire for conciliation, we have asked you to accept our help to establish a state of affairs in Mexico that prevents us from having to organize these expensive expeditions again. Now, that is duplicitous language if I've ever heard it. Now, this is essentially, this was not uh, Napoleon III, who was in Europe. This was his representative. And what he's essentially saying is that uh, we have come to help you end the chaos, join with us, let us set up a new government. Now, the head of that government was going to be Napoleon III. The Mexicans did not acquiesce. And this leads directly to one of the more interesting battles in the century of chaos. A holiday that is widely celebrated in America, although much less so in Mexico. Oddly enough, this is more of a Mexican-American holiday than it is a Mexican holiday. Cinco de Mayo. Now, there is some debate about whether the French uh, really thought the Mexicans would embrace them with open arms uh, or if they really thought that this was kind of a plata y plomo kind of a thing where, hey, you're going to accept our help because we have the weapons. Uh, it didn't really matter in the end. The French forces really did believe that they were going to wipe out the Mexicans and any resistance would be immediately rolled over. And it just didn't work out that way in the best possible way. The French forces uh, stopped at a city called Puebla. It's not Pueblo, it's Puebla. They, instead of skipping it, which they really could have because there wasn't much there. This was mainly civilians. They had a very, very old fort that dated back to the Spanish, uh, but had not been kept up well at all. But they decided not to skip it, not to go around it, and to take the city, believing that it would take approximately one half of an hour. The Mexican general in charge of the defense was a man named Ignacio Zaragoza, and he was a much better general, a much better commander than many, many, many of the others that had been fighting in the decades previous. And specifically in this very area, when the United States approached, the Mexican military fled and just ransacked the city. They looted their own city, is what happened. And the commanders had run ahead of them and taken some of the choices pieces and so it was all mass chaos. When uh, Zaragoza shows up, he doesn't act like that. He's much more professional. And he encourages the civilians to defend their homes. And they do. They were there to dig trenches, to lift barriers. Uh, they were there to 
fire weapons that they could, although many of them had no idea to even load the rifles or let alone aim and shoot them. The French moved in to an empty city. This is on the morning of Cinco de Mayo. This is on the morning of May 5th. The city was abandoned, or it looked like that, because all of the citizens were locked in their homes, barricaded behind their own doors, terrified of what was to come. The French army moved through the city very slowly, very carefully, looking for resistance, and they couldn't find any. Now, the streets of this particular city were very, very narrow, so the army got very, very spread out. The only noise that could be heard were the bells in the cathedral in the center of town. So that's where the French army went. And as they did, they got more and more spread out. When they reached the very center of town, there was a large barricade. There were soldiers behind it, and some of them were children. Literally, there was a young boy of about five years old, and his only job was to fire a cannon that had been concealed uh, behind essentially some fabric. When the French military, the French army, Le Pantalons Rouge, the army of the Red Pants, when they saw finally some resistance uh, with the incredibly overconfident manner, they charged across the center of the town square, and they were met with gunfire and cannon fire. The young boy fired his cannon appropriately and then turned around and ran away. The other soldiers fought fiercely. But more importantly, once the actual cannon went off, once the gunfire could be heard, the citizens went to their roofs and began to attack the strung out French soldiers. The Mexican stronghold in the center of town did not break. The French charges against it were repelled and their supply lines shattered as the citizens began to fight against the French soldiers themselves. And by the middle of the afternoon, the French began to retreat. And when they did so, the Mexican cavalry went after them. It was a rout. They attacked the rear of the retreating soldiers with horses. Uh, The casualties were very, very high on the French side. This was a complete and total victory for the Mexican military against what had been considered to be one of the strongest militaries, one of the strongest armies in the world. May the 5th, 1862 became a legendary day in Mexican history and now a celebrated one, at least in the United States especially in Texas, where there's Cinco de Mayo, sometimes called Cinco de Drinco. There's a lot of booze, a lot of tequila. It's a lot of fun. In France, the news was absolutely met with just shock. People could not believe that this had happened this way. They realized that this was not going to be kind of the steamroll that Napoleon III had thought it would be, and so they decided not to try again. That defeat was so catastrophic that they didn't try again. This was a kind of a one-and-done thing. Uh, A failure of an invasion, very successful defense, and a very quick one at that. And cheap, didn't cost the Mexican government much at all. But what it really did do was it let the powers that be, kind of the conservatives in Mexico City, they realized that 
this state of affairs was not going to be able to continue. They were at the whim of the great powers. They're, they could be conquered. They weren't this time, but it could very well happen again. So they turned to monarchy once again, but they did not look for a Mexican monarch. They went to Europe to try to import a monarch. Yes, you can import monarchs. This is extremely rare, but it it's not the first time that this has happened. The same thing happened in Britain. George I of Great Britain, the, the king of England, was actually German. He uh, didn't at the beginning, he almost spoke no English at all. Uh, they kind of imported him because they needed a monarch. And that's yeah, that's a more complicated story. But yeah, it, this was not the first time this had happened. Uh, as a side note, just kind of a weird little aside. Uh, that's where you get the prime minister. When George I showed up in England, he said to them, uh, he didn't want to meet with all of the ministers. So he said, send me your first minister. And the one who's in charge of all the other ones, send me your prime minister. And that's where the title of office comes from. So in Mexico, needing a ruler, needing a monarch, needing some form of protection from the other European powers, something that the European powers would recognize as an equal, something to prevent another invasion and hopefully to provide some stability. The conservatives in Mexico City turned to a monarch, Maximilian of Habsburg. Now, it should be noted, these were not traitors. The conservatives that did this, they honestly believed they were doing the right thing. They believed that only a very strong central monarchy could save Mexico, and only one that was recognized by the great powers of Europe would prevent further invasions from the great powers. They're not entirely incorrect. It was basically the same thing that the great powers of Europe had done for hundreds of years. You make allies by marrying amongst the great houses. You swap land and titles to prevent invasions. It worked in Europe a little to some extent, and that's what they were going to try to do here. So they turned to Maximilian of Habsburg. He was the brother of uh, Emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he was a man that really had been educated for statecraft. He didn't want the job, but it was his wife, Charlotte, or Carlotta, as their Mexican name is, a Spanish name, rather. She was the one that really encouraged him to take it because she did not want to spend her life in idleness. And this is her specific, these are her words, not mine, to contemplate a rock until the age of 60. And she was referring to a cliff where the couple's castle had been built, and she just, she wanted more. She was highly, highly educated. She spoke more than half a dozen languages fluently and above that, uh, just in, in half portions. She was 22 years old when this uh, offer was actually first made, and she had spent her entire young life studying and preparing to be a, a noble, to be a part of the royalty. She spoke the languages. She had a working understanding of history. She had even studied not just statecraft and diplomacy, but military tactics and 
She was well-versed in modern military theory and military technology. She was extremely accomplished. And she was made, she was bred, she was brought up, she was educated to be a queen. So under pressure from his wife and given the assurances from the envoys from Mexico, and these are probably lies, but they assured him that 75% of the country wanted him as their ruler. The couple stopped in Rome on the way to have an audience with the Pope to receive his blessing, so to speak. And then they crossed the Atlantic to take the throne of Mexico. It should be noted, really, that these two people were, were good. They were good individuals. They were, they were not terrible people. They were not despots. They were not dictators. And they actually had very noble goals for the country. There's no question about that. What they wanted to do was to help the country. They really did want the country of Mexico to succeed. And they were good people. On their way to the capital, they were stopping in a city and their carriage had been bogged down in the mud. The mules that were pulling it uh, kind of refused to continue, uh, which if you know anything about mules, they do that sometimes. They just stop. They, they're not going to go. They're very stubborn as a mule is where that comes from. So the mules weren't moving and the carriage had stopped. So a group of the local Native American, the mestizos, the, the indigenous peoples, they stepped up, removed the mules from the harness and prepared to pull the carriage carrying the new emperor and his wife to carry into the city. And they absolutely outright refused to do that. They simply would not let them do it. Uh, although the local people were saying that this is not a big deal. We do this all the time. We can pull your carriage. We are very strong. They said, no, you, you are not animals. You will not be burden. You will not pull the carriage in place of mules or horses. So instead, the new emperor and his wife walked the several miles into the city uh, in their finery, uh, rather than being pulled by the local tribes. That may not seem like a big thing, but it really is. It's a that's a big deal. It, it really indicated how they thought about the people that they were now going to rule over, and. Obviously, today, we would hear something like that and think that, that's, of course, that's what should be done. But back then, it was much less common, and it is something absolutely to be commended. Word of this and of some of the other speeches that Maximilian was making kind of spread, and the the people of Mexico were, re were willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. The people were. Not so much the great powers, but the peasants themselves were wanting stability. They really did hope that, you know, good rulers would be able to stop the constant, never-ending revolutions, the decades of war that had ravaged this country. And they wanted someone who would listen to the people, to listen to the forgotten ones and not treat them as just something is expendable. And so the story of refusing to be pulled by them actually did resonate with a huge portion of the population. While they were in Puebla, the site of Cinco de Mayo, Princess Carlotta 
when Charlotte turned 24 years old. The couple was crowned in the Cathedral of Mexico City on April 10, 1864. On the very first night, they had a makeshift bed on a pool table because the official bed was swarming with bed bugs. The palace, the country, was in a fairly dilapidated and deplorable state. Maximilian promised that he would establish, and these are his words, liberal, wise institutions and order. Now, when he said that, the conservative powers that had put him into power uh, kind of cringed, but this was far too late to go back on it, and there was nothing they could do but just go along with it. And thus is the problem. Maximilian was caught between the two factions. He was placed in power by the conservatives, but he was absolutely uh, attempting to establish changes and reforms that they were diametrically opposed. But the peasants themselves, the uh, they would never, the liberals were never going to support him, no matter what he did. And he tried to do so much. His very first act, having taken power, was to receive a delegation of the Native Americans uh, who wanted to uh, address the taking of their ancestral lands. Now, just hearing their grievances and willing to listen to them, that was a first. That had never been done in decades, in, in centuries, really. But they went farther than that, much, much further. They wanted. To, they attempted to abolish uh, miners, and the, uh, no more child labor. They attempted to establish the complete freedom of worship, the complete freedom of the press. They wanted to limit the work days so that everybody would get two days off every single week. They absolutely wanted to outlaw corporal punishment. You're not allowed to use physical punishment to discipline your workers. They wanted to give the freedom to choose where to work, that you were not going to be bound to the land uh, or to one employer or great power or great house or another. This is pretty radical at that point because there were entire families that were not allowed to leave their land that they were working on. They were essentially, it's serfdom. They were basically, it's not slavery exactly, but they were owned by the the wealthy people that owned the land and they were tied to it. And they, uh, Maximilian attempted to abolish that. Employers were going to be required to pay in cash that you actually had to pay in pesos, not with some BS monopoly money that they came up with themselves. Uh, there was a that was a reform that was also happening in the United States. People pushed that very, very heavily. I'm not going to go into it, but that's a really big deal. Take my word for it. They wanted compulsory education for all children and free education for those children. Again, very novel idea. They were trying to attract foreign scientists, technicians, academics. They wanted to establish a drainage system for the cities. This is just basic sewage to prevent outbreaks of cholera and other diseases. There was supposed to be land property rights for the peasants, freedom from peonage, improvement of the hospitals, nursing homes, charitable houses. All of these things were going to be expensive and they were going to fund them by giving the taxed church land to the peasants and that's where the money was going to come from and that was it that was really what uh, brought around 
brought about their downfall. The church wanted their lands back. They wanted their assets returned, and Maximilian and Carlotta refused to do so. The uh, liberal groups in exile called them tyrants. The conservatives having uh, felt like they were betrayed because everything that the conservatives stood for, well, now Maximilian and Carlotta are doing the opposite. It was a grand idea, but it ultimately did not work. Grand ideas. I mean, there was many, 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 many ideas, and they just simply did not work. The people wouldn't work with them. The powers wouldn't accept them. The church was enraged, and the liberals who should have supported their policies still considered them to be monarchs from across the ocean who had no business ruling Mexico. To be fair, before I actually finish this part of the story, all three of those groups were right. I mean, you have to understand that they're not wrong. The liberal groups in Mexico absolutely did not want a monarch from Europe ruling their country. Decades before, they had fought a war for independence, and they considered this to be going backwards, regardless of how much they may have agreed with the policies that Maximilian was putting into place. The conservatives were betrayed. They put this man on the throne, and now he's doing everything that they opposed. The church was enraged because they thought they were going to get their lands and assets back. When Maximilian and Carlotta met with a pope on the way to Mexico, we don't know if they actually told him what they were going to do, but we do know that the church was very, very angry when they refused to give their land and money back. So all three groups hated them, regardless of how noble their intentions were and regardless of how wonderful some of those policies could have been. All of them were going to take time to do and time was something that Maximilian and Carlotta simply did not have. Because the other factor was the United States. Having finished their civil war in 1865, the presidency of Andrew Johnson uh, after Lincoln absolutely 100% did not want to have a European-style monarchy as their southern neighbor. When the French troops, who were still there, although they absolutely were not doing anything other than just attempting to uh, maintain some semblance of order and to make sure that the Mexican government was going to pay their war debts, uh, when Napoleon III needed their troops to pull back to Europe, they announced that they were going to do so. And when the French had announced that they were going to be leaving Mexico, all of a sudden the Mexican government, the Mexican people realized that they were once again wide open. Maximilian was actually advised to abdicate, to leave his throne. He refused to do so. Charlotte left. She went back to Europe to try to plead her husband's case. Really what she was trying to do was to get Napoleon to not withdraw the troops from Mexico because they were kind of a bulwark against outside foreign invasions. They just needed time to make the country strong, and time is the one thing that they didn't have. Well, that and money. The liberal factions in Mexico realized that the 
The French troops were leaving. They formed a military. They marched on the city. There was a two-month-long siege. The last troops that were rem- that were loyal to Maximilian ended up betraying him. They handed over the city. The emperor was arrested. There was a trial, which was not really a trial. He was sentenced to be shot on the outskirts of the city. The soldiers that were tasked to, to shoot him actually... They were not his supporters, but they respected him a great deal uh, because of everything that he had tried to do. On June 19th, 1867, so basically three years after he had arrived in Mexico, he stood in front of the firing squad. He gave each of the soldiers a gold coin, the ones that were about to kill him. He asked them, please do not shoot me in the face, but please do your duty. I do not hold this against you. His last words were, I forgive everyone, and I also beg everyone to forgive me. May my blood seal the misfortunes of this country. Long live Mexico. Viva Mexico. The shots were fired, and the Austrian Archduke, who had so wanted Mexico to be successful, was dead. In Charlotte... While in Europe, she had attempted to talk to Napoleon III to send his uh, troops to support her husband. That failed. She went to the Pope to beg him for assistance so that the church would support him. That failed. She essentially went mad. Uh, She began to speak all the different languages that she knew. She didn't stick with one language, not German or Italian, not French or Spanish, but just a mixture of all of them. She would rant and rave about assassins attempting to kill her. Assassins from Mexico, killers from Napoleon, from the Pope. She believed that she was in imminent danger and would not last more than a few weeks. She lived for the next 60 years. She was locked in a castle in Belgium. Insane by all accounts. An embarrassment to her very wealthy family, Princess Charlotte, who had not wanted to stay in one place, contemplating a rock, until the age of 60, lived until her mid-80s, never leaving her family's home, imprisoned there. She, at least, is still remembered fondly. In Mexico, there was a song written about her, Adios Mama Colata. Adios, mi tierra amor. Goodbye, Mama Carlotta. Goodbye, my tender love. All right, we're going to stop there. This one took, as is so often the case with with me, (laughs) this took a lot longer than I thought. This is, we're going on a little over an hour. I thought this was going to be half hour to 45 minutes, and I didn't even get to... Porfirio Diaz, the dictator that rose to power at the end of the 19th century. So we're going to do that next, and that will lead directly into the more interesting portions, the Mexican Revolution, Pancho Villa. But that'll come next. I'm actually going to be working on that from my timeline tomorrow, and so that will be up at the beginning of 2024. There will be another episode about uh, stories from Christmas, that will be released in about uh, two weeks or so, right before Christmas. 
And then the next one about the history of Mexico will... The Mexican Revolution and the Dictator will come at the beginning of January 2024. We do, I do hope you have enjoyed this. I really enjoyed learning about all this stuff, and I tried to put it together in what I consider to be an entertaining way. It's just absolutely fascinating, and some of them is just really, really tragic. And I didn't even get to some of the more interesting anecdotes, like how Santa Ana was absolutely instrumental in the invention of chewing gum. Uh, maybe I'll throw that one in. In the, uh, in the next one. So this has been Storied History. If you hit the uh, subscribe button, you'll be able to get the next one once I finish making it and getting it uploaded. Thank you all again for listening so very, very much. I uh, wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Or I, should, I guess I should say Feliz Navidad and Feliz Año Nuevo. Thanks for listening. Storied History is written and recorded by Charles Chestnut with audio production and original music by Seamus O'Connor. The recording you heard of Adios Mama Carlata is courtesy of the National Library of Mexico. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and subscribe. Have a happy holidays and we'll see you again soon.